It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Parliament's successful efforts to take control of Brexit, Boris Johnson's retaliation by booting out 21 prominent centrist MPs from the Tory party, then trying and failing to call a general election. We'll try and come to some conclusion about what might happen next. Plus, we'll be digging into the Labour Party's plans for government and following the FT series this week into their spending plans, what a Labour government would look like, and in fact, when they would like to have a general election. I'm delighted to be joined by our Whitehall editor James Blitt, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Economics Editor Chris Jowes, and our special guest from the Institute for Government Think Tank, Maddie Thinman-Jack. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do enjoy a positive review. Parliament returned from its summer recess this week and the first order of the day was backbench MPs trying to take control of the order paper to stop a no-deal Brexit. The plan was successful. Speaker John Burko allowed them to take control of the House, introduce a bill that made its way rapidly through. But Mr Johnson was not very happy and the MPs who voted for that bill were unceremoniously kicked out of the Tory party. So the likes of Ken Clark, Nicholas Soames, Philip Hammond, David Gore are now no longer Conservatives. So James Blitz, let's begin with the start of this week, which was we knew this plan was coming. We talked about it on the podcast last week and it went pretty much as we expected. They requested an emergency debate which was granted by John Burko. They took control of the House of Commons order paper on Wednesday and introduced that bill which is a pretty complex piece of legislation in the end. Yes it is. I mean I should say right at the start because I think journalists have to be honest that uh, last week I completely predicted this wrongly. I assumed that the bill would go through and it did but I took the view that uh, Boris Johnson would just have to live with it and, and go forward to the negotiation with the European Council in October. But I did not predict, and I think a lot of people didn't predict, just how brutal his response would be. One, insisting on having a general election, and two, insisting on kicking out the 21 highly respected, in many cases, MPs uh, who backed it. But yes, what has basically happened is, and we knew something like this was going to happen, is that Parliament, the House of Commons, a majority of MPs in the House of Commons have basically introduced legislation that mandates Boris Johnson at the European Council on October 17th to basically either do one of two things, either get a deal with the EU and get it passed by the Commons, or alternatively have an extension to the Article 50 process to Britain's membership of the EU up until January the 31st, 2020. Now, for Johnson, this is a terrible setback because he has insisted all along that we are going to leave the EU do or die, in his words, on October the 31st. And so the idea that he might have to agree to an extension is incredibly humiliating for him. And that is why there has been such a resistance. 
So, Maddie, when this plan came forward, it was as we predicted. It was how the Cooper Bowles bills went through earlier this year, which was a bill to mandate the PM to have an extension. It was more detailed than the efforts that came before because in the way they, the rebels trusted Theresa May to do what was said in that bill, they certainly don't trust Boris Johnson. And the way the thing was written was to try and bind his hands at every opportunity. And one of those sections has become particularly controversial, which essentially said that if Mr Johnson went off to the EU, he asks for a delay to the 31st of January. If they say no and say, here's a date in five years' time, then the PM has to accept that and then put it to a vote in the House of Commons. And that has proved very problematic in the PR war and it was instantly dubbed by Mr Johnson as Jeremy Corbyn's surrender bill. Yeah, exactly. So so what they've they sort of set this 19th October deadline whereby he has to either, as James just said, either get a deal and approved in the House of Commons or, I mean, quite crucially, depending on, you know, if he could get an election before the 19th of October, they all they have to approve no deal. But if he can't do either of those things, he has to ask for an extension. And what the bill says is if the EU agree to the date that the, the Commons have sort of mandated, so that's the 31st of January, then he has to agree to it. If the EU suggests something else, then he has to agree to that. I mean, what's really important is that there is a bit of the bill that says unless MPs actively reject what the EU say. I mean, I think the, the reason that some people are sort of a bit upset about this is that they don't give much time for that to happen. So he either has to agree to what the EU says within two days or he has to hold a vote in the House of Commons, MPs have to reject it within two days so that he doesn't have to agree to it. And that's sort of why it's not technically right to say that the EU can just completely mandate when the extension is for, but there doesn't give much time for the government to try and refuse it, basically. So Miranda Green, when this legislation it was brought forward and a lot of Conservatives backed this plan, in fact Philip Hammond who, lest we forget, six weeks ago was Chancellor and a very senior figure in Theresa May's government, his name was actually leading the bill when it came forward and he's become the pivotal figure in this effort to avert a no-deal Brexit and there was a lot of other former people from Theresa May's cabinet who were on that and it came out over the weekend that uh, Boris Johnson had gone off to checkers and over a curry lunch had agreed with the Chief Whip and other senior people, including his infamous advisor Dominic Cummings, that if Tory MPs voted for that bill and they broke the government with, they would be kicked out of the Conservative Party. And to the astonishment of Westminster, that's exactly what happened. Well, we're running out of words to describe politics week by week, aren't we? I mean, I completely agree with James. Some of our more reasonable predictions of both sides in this dispute reacting to each other in the way that we're used to sides in a political dispute reacting. I mean, it's all gone out the window and you had this extraordinary escalation escalation on both sides. And I think that's what's almost most notable about the developments this week is the desire for both sides to kind of humiliate the other and almost to not give a way out. And that, I think, is what's most concerning. You know, actually, if you want to come to some sort of conclusion of this other than a general election, you've got to offer, you know, in in international diplomacy, you have to sort of give your opponent a way to back down. Otherwise, they can't. They're almost giving Boris Johnson no way to come to an agreement with the Commons in the same way that he, through this massive escalation and by firing scores of his own MPs, has also escalated the dispute with Parliament. I do think it's interesting to sort of step back a moment and just sort of contrast what their tactics seem to be in number 10 to get through this sort of short emergency period where they've decided to do do or die Brexit by the end of October and what you would think that any Conservative Prime Minister would do in terms of the interests of his own party and his own government. Because what you're seeing in the behaviour of Boris Johnson 
person and the group around him is is not arguably something that serves the interests of the Conservative Party. But of course, he's got at the heart of his operation someone who isn't a Conservative and was branded by Philip Hammond an entryist. This has become the most controversial thing this week, James, because this threat was made and I think some people thought, well, they're not actually going to go through with it, but they did. And the, the size of the rebellion was quite a lot larger than we were expecting and we're not entirely sure why because the whips had told Number 10 this week that the rebellion was going to be about 10 MPs and they'd worked successfully to keep it very small. And some are blaming Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House of Commons, who gave a maverick performance he could be described as in the House of Commons during the debate on the legislation. And there's a very infamous picture of him lying loosely across the benches that was seen as arrogant by some and contemptuous of the House. And a lot of MPs said, in fact, that the way Mr Rees-Mogg acted had pushed them to rebel. So from going about 10, it went into the 20s. And those were very prominent people. You know, Ken Clark, one of Margaret Thatcher's most prominent reforming ministers, a Conservative MP for 49 years. Philip Hammond, who's been in the Conservative Party 43 years. David Gork, who was Justice Secretary. Justin Greening, Education Secretary. And of course, Sir Nicholas Soames, a Tory grandee and the grandson of um, Sir Winston Churchill. That these are very serious people who have played a big role in the Tory party in the last three, four decades and they're now all gone. Yes, I, that's exactly right. And look, I think one's got to move, I think, beyond things like Jacob Rees-Mogg's posture on the front benches. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know people have been saying that to try and describe it. But I think as I stand back and look at it, this week has been a strategic disaster of the first order for Boris Johnson. I think we have to start off with that. There was always going to be a rebellion of sorts in when he came in because people are so worried about no deal and the timing is very close. But Johnson made a number of really bad mistakes to make sure that rebellion was big. Mistake number one was the suspension of Parliament over five weeks, the prorogation that we were talking about last week. That lost him an enormous amount of trust with MPs on all sides because it it gave the impression that this is a man who's going gung-ho to take us out on October the 31st. And he did But he probably wants that. that impression put forward, do you not think? He may want that impression put forward to give the impression to the EU that he's serious about no deal. The trouble is he's also making it clear to a lot of moderate conservatives he's serious about no deal as well. And that is what has galvanised that rebellion. The second strategic mistake was that when MPs who were quite... Tory MPs were quite uh, well-minded towards him, turned around and said, well, look, give us some evidence that you're actually trying to get a deal on October the 17th. He couldn't produce any. He was asked repeatedly in the House of Commons to do that. And those two things have led to this huge rebellion, the passage of the law. He then turns around and says, OK, because I've been defeated like this, I want an election. And then he's not going to get that either. So he is the problem for Johnson now is he's ended up absolutely cornered in a way he just didn't need to be. Two weeks ago when he came back from the G7 summit, things were much better for him. He has absolutely cornered himself this week. I think, Miranda, there was this meeting um, on the day of the vote in Downing Street where the rebels were all brought in and they asked the Prime Minister, you know, come on, give us your evidence that there's going to be a deal. And that has actually once again contributed to the size of the rebellion because when a lot of these MPs were waiting to see the Prime Minister, Mr Cummings came and hectored them and said, I don't know who any of you are. I don't care who you are. And then he went to see Mr Johnson and he didn't offer them the reassurances that they were actively going to get a deal as opposed to just saying they were going to do that. And then this moment, which again, it feels like a very big step that the Conservative Party with these people now gone, some may come back. I think there has been some talk about the rebels who are not so far gone as people in number 10 call it might be brought back into the fold. But it does 
does feel like the Conservative Party has made a big step towards becoming the Vote Leave Party or the Brexit Party this week because those centrist, one-nation Conservatives, a lot of them represent liberal London seats and that sort of thing, are now gone and a lot of them are just quitting politics altogether. Well, you've got to think. I mean, Dominic Cummings is said to be obsessed with sort of military strategy and, you know, Sun Tzu is the art of war and all the rest of it. So to sort of indulge that set of metaphors for a minute, there is a big difference between tactics and strategy and a big difference between what you do to win a small battle or skirmish and what the war is that you think you're fighting. Since they seem to be fixated on this idea of going to a general election, they would prefer to have it sooner rather than later. But obviously we've seen the opposition put blocks in their path in terms of that. But we will be having an election at some point soon because this is now an unsustainable situation with no governing majority. But in that battle that they are so desperate to fight, okay, I understand that they want to set this up as a kind of populist, the people and the potential prime minister versus a meddling parliament that won't honour the referendum. But actually, as you've said, by alienating a large chunk of their own MPs, these are some of the best known conservative figures in public life. These are people with a track record. You're actually endangering losing so many voters on your other flank, your non-Brexity flank, to either the Lib Dems or Labour or whatever sort of loose Remainy or Stop No Brexit alliance can be formed across the country. And indeed to the SNP in Scotland, you know, who are likely to get back a lot of those Tory seats that were won in 2017. That actually, you know, you might end up, Boris Johnson has said do or die on October the 31st, we may be getting a bit clearer to what die looks like, which is losing this general election that they want. So Maddie, let's go back to the law that was passed. It went through the Commons as lots of amendments were put forward to it. None of them stuck. They were mostly Brexit MPs trying to stop this thing from getting through. It then went off to the House of Lords and a lot of MP MPs, I should say, turned up with their duvets and their shaving kits and they were expecting to do late night sitting. But in fact, it went through the House of Lords pretty quickly and pretty unscathed. And it looks like that legislation will enter the statute books on Monday. Yeah, that's right. So in terms of what on Wednesday, so when sort of the Commons were considering the bill themselves, the Lords were trying to pass a business motion which would allow them to get through the stages of the bill very quickly on Thursday and on Friday. You know, there were a load of amendments were tabled from the government um, peers, so I think there were around 86, maybe a couple more, and there was a real concern that actually they would just wouldn't finish the business motion before Friday, which means they wouldn't get to the bill at all this week. In the end, I think it was the fact that the government ended up losing their early election motion, which is they tabled in response to the bill passing the Commons, which meant the government realised that they just had to sit back and let this bill come go through, because I think also there was a feeling that actually the opposition peers did sort of mean business and they were going to sit through the night as you say, and really make sure they get to this bill. So they sort of stood down and said, "Okay, you can have this motion, you can get through the bill on Thursday and Friday. And it does mean, doesn't look like it will be amended in the Lords and so it will be ready to become law on Monday. So I think, you know, the challenge for Johnson now is that once that is in law, he will be required to go and ask for an extension if he can't get a deal. So in response to that, he did what he said he was going to do and put down a dissolution motion under the Fixed Term Parliament Act. Now, Theresa May did this in 2017, the first time this process was used. And back then, two thirds of MPs voted for the election, Labour did, the Tories did, went through fine. For Boris Johnson, it didn't quite go to plan because I think in number 10, they expected Corbyn would not look frit, to use Boris Johnson's word of one of the more annoying words in Westminster, to say he was frightened of a, going to an election. But Labour didn't vote for it and they needed 434 MPs to vote for that motion and they were way off by that point. So he's now in a very unenviable situation of wanting an election but can't get it. Yeah, and this is the thing is that previously, before we had the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, 
it was passed in 2011, then he could have just called an election when he wanted to. So it, he would have been in a position where he could break this deadlock and would be in control of the process. Whereas now we know that Parliament is in control, basically. And because he needs this two-thirds majority, essentially it's up to the opposition parties to decide when he can have his election. And we know he's going to try again on Monday, but it still doesn't look like he's going to get the numbers because the discussion has been essentially is, does passing this bill, making this bill become law, is that enough to ensure that you've taken no deal off the table? And it seems like now opposition MPs think, no, it's not enough. They need to guarantee that this extension has been asked for and has been agreed to. And only at that point will they give him the election he wants. Because James, I think looking at where number 10 wanted this week to end up, the public have clearly got the message that he is serious about doing what he needs to do to deliver Brexit, come what may, do or die by October 31st. But what I don't think they banked on was Labour not backing the election. And now Mr Johnson's in the very unenviable position of having to face, as Maddie was saying, forced to go and get an extension, but not getting that election. And they've gone to try again on Monday and put forward this motion, but Labour and the SNP have made it clear on Friday they're still not going to vote for that again. And there's some other mechanisms they might try, but politically, that is clearly something that has backfired this week. Unbelievably so. This week, what has happened is he started off outmanoeuvring himself. He basically box-put himself in a corner, OK, by basically not realising that this law, this, this anti-no-deal law would be passed, then coming out saying, right, I want an election. And now Labour has come round and put him in a corner even more. Now, as you say, on Monday, I think what we're seeing now is that Labour and the opposition parties are basically saying, look, as Maddie has said, we're prepared to have an election, but you've got to go through the whole process of implementing this extension to Article 50 up till January 2020. Really bad news for Johnson. His central point has always been, I will coming out on October the 31st. No extension. No extensions. He said this week in front of police officers, right, I'd rather die in a ditch than have an extension on October the 31st. He is now massively under pressure to extend if he can't get a deal. I mean, his choices are limited. He can either get a deal or he can extend, which means breaking his word. He can ignore the law altogether, but that's a constitutional crisis of the first order. And that leaves him with only one option, which is to resign. I mean, that is a potential outcome of all this, to actually say, look, Parliament's put me in a, an impossible situation and I'll stand down. But the point is, Labour has him and the opposition has him exactly where they want him, facing all this turmoil inside his party, unable to move an election which changes the whole backdrop and the picture as he wants, and basically stewing in his own juices. The other thing, Miranda, that really threw Boris Johnson this week, which was, I think, totally unexpected, was the departure of his brother, Joe Johnson, a former FT journalist who's been in Parliament since 2010 as the MP for Orpington and Kent. He worked for David Cameron in the Number 10 Policy Unit. He drew up the manifesto for the successful 2015 election. He's worked in the Cabinet Office, Transport, and most recently was Universities Minister. And the junior Mr Johnson was very uncomfortable with the PM's Brexit position, that he was in Theresa May's government, actually quit and wrote an FT essay about why he was leaving to campaign for second referendum. And then he obviously, his brother ran for the party leadership. He supported him in that build. Fed he had to. But then the events of this week, to my understanding, were just too much for him. First of all, it was the 21 rebels. It was also the way Mr Cummings had acted. But the way that he announced it with this very innocent looking tweet on Thursday morning basically said that he had to choose between his family and the national interest and the national interest had to come first. So saying that his brother is not fit to lead the country was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. And I think the sort of family drama aside, and also if we put aside the kind of 
interesting subtext that lots of ministers who go through the Department of Education have turned out to be a real thorn in the side of various prime ministers. They all seem to sort of radicalise in a moderate way while they're in there. I think it also draws attention to something really important, which is that Joe Johnson seems to feel, and the Johnson camp were keen to reiterate this themselves, that actually they agree on many other policies. You know, they both have this one nation-y yeah. You know, moderate social reform or all the rest of it. But on this one overriding issue, Brexit, Joe Johnson feels it's so against the national interest to go through with the Bojo plan that he had to resign from the government. And it really sort of gives the lie to the whole pitch of why the Johnson premiership could be successful, which was the idea that once in number 10, he would be a one nation conservative who could appeal across the board as he had done as London mayor to, you know, more centrist voters, even with loyalties to other parties. And I think this is the thing. It's the fact that the Brexit push and this kind of hurtling towards a no deal Brexit is such a radical act and such a sort of revolutionary act that it explodes the possibility of the Johnson premiership being seen as other than extreme. The one thing that conservatives I've spoken to this week feel when they're looking back on this very tumultuous political week is that everything that's happened with the rebels and Brexit, that's manageable. But the thing that's actually concerned the most is Mr. Johnson's public performance twice. So he did his first PMQs. It was pretty awful, basically. You know, it's one of the worst PMQs I think I've seen because he was all over the place. He cracked several jokes that didn't land at all. And Jeremy Corbyn, who himself, again, is not a strong PMQs performer, easily beat him. So that was the first thing. The second thing was just hours after Joe Johnson's resignation, he went up to Yorkshire to speak in front of a whole bunch of police officers. He was an hour late. One of the police officers appeared to faint because they'd been waiting for him so long. And the speech he gave was at times totally incoherent. And it just gave that sense this whole thing is coming off the rails already. I strongly agree. And also we should uh, remind our listeners that all of this chaos and the atmosphere of chaos overshadowed the spending review, which was supposed to be the moment for Sajid Javid to set out the election bribes that were supposedly going to win them a majority. So it's been a disastrous week. It's been the worst start for a premiership, I think, in living memory, probably if one goes back since the war. And it's not just Johnson himself. It's been There have been lacklustre performances from all the major players in Cabinet. Jacob Rees-Mogg, with that lounging thing, as you said, in the chamber arousal, just had, it looks awful, I think, to a lot of people in the public. And um, also the spending review, Sajid Javid, it wasn't a great performance at the dispatch box. He was having to be repeatedly asked by the Speaker to get back to the subject of the spending review and not make political points. Finally, Maddie, let's just look at where things go now. So Parliament is still set to be prorogued at some point next week. We don't know the exact date, but there's two critical things facing the Prime Minister now. One is going to be how can he get that election that he now spent the whole week claiming he doesn't want and now very much does seem to want. And there's various mechanisms for that. And then the second thing to James's point is if that bill becomes law, what can he do to try and subvert it? So in terms of how he can get to an election, so he they're going to try again with this early election motion to try and get a two-thirds majority. I think we can all pretty much assume that's going to fail. I mean, there are two other ways he could try and get one, which would require just a simple majority, although I think at this stage, actually, that even trying to get a simple majority seems pretty unlikely. Those two would involve, so one of them would be to pass a very short law specifying your election date to get around the, the terms of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. The challenge with that is that, yes, 
to need a majority, it would be open to amendment and it would have to go through the House of Lords as well. So not straightforward. The other is a possibility that he could call a vote of no confidence in himself, which you've talked about as well, um, which is, you know, the thing about that is it would be a quite a challenge for opposition parties to actively vote confidence in him to try and stop an election. So it'd be a bit more of an open challenge to Labour to actually do that. But the risk with that is that it triggers your sort of 14 day period under the four- Fixed Term Parliaments Act if the no confidence motion is passed. The opposition parties could try and rally round a formal alternative government. Don't know if that would be successful, but also it pushes your election date. Um, so it would be really challenging to actually get an election before the 31st of October anyway. So it's not necessarily a great route either. So I think really his only other option looking at the terms of the bill that's going to become law is to try and get a deal and try and get a deal that will get a majority in the House of Commons. And I mean, in terms of how or whether he can do that, I think that's still a huge question. You know, he said that by passing this this bill, this law, the Commons have sort of knocked the feet out from underneath his negotiating strategy because he was relying on this threat of no deal to try and get the EU to agree. I think actually his biggest challenge is showing the EU that there would be a majority for anything in the House of Commons. So I think that's still his biggest problem. And, you know, he has has lost these sort of Conservative MPs, who most of whom actually did support the deal that Theresa May had negotiated. So it could be still that we see him bring back a deal very similar to the one that Theresa May negotiated and see if he can try and get a majority for that. Aside from all the chaos in Westminster this week, the FT has been running a series on the Corbyn revolution. Led by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, we've been looking into what a Jeremy Corbyn government would look like, what kind of policies it would implement, who are the key figures in that government, and exactly how radical would it be? Jim, you've been our kind of Labour guru for quite some time. Can you just talk us a bit about where the idea for the series came from and what you found was the most revealing thing? Because one thing the Corbyn are always very sort of shirty about is they're not taken seriously because a lot of them come from very left-wing fringe parts of the party that were cast out for many years and they seem to have been quite delighted that they have been taken seriously and their policies are being looked at as something that the FT is interested in. So I think the original idea for this came from Robert Shrimsley, our political commentator back in the spring. And I think it was partly the sense that everywhere in the world where there are business conferences and people start talking about the UK, firstly, they talk obviously about Brexit. But there's also a massive groundswell of curiosity about could Jeremy Corbyn become prime minister and what would he do if he was prime minister? And a lot of sort of fear and trepidation and concern, frankly, I'm not saying all business people or FT readers or people at business conferences are worried about Labour, but an awful lot of them are. And yet there's not really that much media coverage about what a Labour government would do. And I don't want to sound critical of the general media, but back in 2017, to be fair, none of us really wrote that much about what a Labour government would do ahead of that general election because they were 24, 25 points behind in the polls. And yet they came within two percentage points of of beating the Tories. And they would have got into power and there would have been an awful lot of of people saying, oh, right, so that's what it, what it means at Labour government. This is a bit of a surprise. And so we didn't want to make that mistake again. And, and we wanted to go very forensically, objectively, fairly, looking at what a Labour government would do. And a lot of the policies they have were in the 2017 manifesto and haven't changed. But there are an awful lot of other policies which have been raised since then, such as the three-day weekend, for example. John McDonnell I interviewed this week for lunch with the FT, and he's revealed 
that he would like a kind of right to buy for private tenants. I mean, that is a massive policy. That is a sort of a, a policy on the scale of Thatcher's right to buy reforms. He also reveals uh, in this interview, and it's a new story today, that he would like to ban bonuses, another massive policy. And uh, one element of what we've done is we've aggregated dozens and dozens of policy announcements by Labour, which, you know, they have been covered here or there by the FT and by other media, to be fair. But when you aggregate them together, you get this picture of the most radical uh, opposition party in Britain for certainly my lifetime. I think it's certainly fair to say that in the media, when Mr Corbyn became leader of the opposition, that... You know, we focused a lot on the personalities and the battles within Labour about this, as opposed to the actual policies. And, you know, Chris Giles, one of the headlines that came out from this was the £300 billion of redistributing assets, which, you know, from Labour's perspective, is the headline actually they want, because they want to be seen as a transformative government. And when that front page came out earlier this week, you know, the Conservatives said, look at how much a Labour government's going to cost you. In fact, Jeremy Corbyn himself tweeted the FT's front page to say, the FT's acknowledging this is going to be a radical government that's not going to work in the interests necessarily of big businesses. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's actually quite telling uh, some of the differences between the reactions we've had within the Labour Party, which have generally been quite favourable. And as Jim says, they're very pleased that an organisation such as the FT is taking them very seriously and looking very carefully and, uh, and rigorously at their policies. And some of sort of other left-wing commentators who are sort of rather cross that we've done it. And you can see that in a letter, which is in today's paper from, I think, it's 90 left-wing or left-leaning economists who criticised some of the aspects of our reporting. Personally, I don't think very effectively, but they, they so we've published their letter. Uh, and there's a real difference. I think that what's really interesting is not necessarily the, the particular details of that, but that the Labour Party is quite happy with the reporting and they like the scrutiny. And we've I've certainly spent a lot of uh, the past two weeks going backwards and forwards with some of my numbers with them. And uh, some of the other people on the left think they want to sort of get it through behind, below the radar. So Labour itself is very happy now that uh, people are talking a lot about what they might do in government, not treating them as uh, a party that is so far from government and couldn't possibly be seen as the next government. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at what the general coverage of the Labour Party has been over the last year or two, it basically divides into three categories. One is the internecine warfare between new Labour MPs and Corbyn Easter MPs. The other is the anti-Semitism scandal that's run and run involving members, some members among the very large membership of the Labour Party and the not very good action in terms of cracking down on that by the leadership. And then the third thing is Labour's Brexit policy. And, you know, I did a Factiva search in terms of how many articles have been written about this inclusive ownership fund, which is a very kind of bland name for the state confiscation of £300 billion worth of shares and their transfer to workers. And I think that has had, um, since it was announced a year ago, that had about 100 articles written about it, compared to 20,000 articles written about Labour anti-Semitism. And if you look at the scale of that policy, and you look at how big it is, and you remember that the new Labour um, windfall tax on utility companies raised £4.8 billion, or you think Ed Miliband's energy price freeze policy, you know, those are drops in the ocean compared to the magnitude 
of what Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell would do in office. And of course, we're not belittling the issues with racism within the Labour Party that have been very problematic and are still totally, really unresolved by the leadership there. But the other thing, Chris, that came out of this for me as well was the amount of gaps in how much their spending is going to cost. And you crunched the numbers on this and found that, in fact, you know, Labour was very, very cautious at the last election to say that its tax rises would only affect 5% of people. But you've actually found a rather big hole and they would have to actually raise taxes by a much bigger margin to fund all of the promises that they want to fulfil. Well, you only have to look at what's changed since the 2017 election. So some things that they promised then uh, have changed. So student loans, making them free, has got more expensive because a lot more students out there, even in the past two years, and the loan amounts have gone up. Then uh, a lot of the other policies, they've talked about reversing austerity, which they themselves have costed at about $42 billion. So I took an absolutely minimalist definition of that, much lower than that. And I took off numbers such as the health spending that's already been announced by Theresa May. So I took a very, very cautious approach and in the end got to essentially 1% of GDP or £26 billion extra, which is about £400 per person per year if it was spread evenly. It'd be quite hard to do that only by putting tax on the richest 5% of people. So there is a bit of a hole in what Labour's doing and, and they can fill it in a number of ways. Either they can ditch their own borrowing rule because all everything we've done has been within what they've said they would borrow because the Tories are clearly going to borrow more than uh, we thought recently or they could further increase taxes or they could disappoint a lot of their supporters by not being as radical as they have suggested they would be and none of this none of this includes really radical things like citizens incomes uh, which has been floated by the Labour Party and they said they'll look at it very seriously but really are not going to happen not quickly at least. Chris I suppose the other area that they could target which they conspicuously didn't do in 2017 is they didn't have a mansion tax they didn't do any kind of raid on uh, wealth or property and yet there was this report a few months ago commissioned by the Labour Party even though it was by external figures such as George Monbiot um, I think it was called Land for the Many and that came up with some quite radical suggestions about changes to the way that property is taxed um, for example council tax would no longer be paid by tenants would be paid by landlords there would be an end to the capital gains tax exemption for primary residences and there would be much more tax on buy-to-let landlords. So I suppose that is one example of where there's blue sky thinking going on and it could hit people when they get into government. Oh yes, wealth is the, is the, was the big unknown from 2017 and you're seeing other there's a report out just this weekend coming from IPPR which has come up with some other new ideas on wealth taxes which they say will raise 90 or so billion pounds. So people out there are thinking of very, very, very large wealth taxes, much larger than I think is really plausible. 90 billion pounds a year being about 4% of GDP, which is much more than any country really raises in wealth taxes. But those ideas are out there and uh, they might well become much more out there either uh, in a manifesto or in an ex-Labour government. One of the things that you and I, Jim, looked into for this project is the people around Corbyn and we created this network of influencers and the power behind the people and the policy. And one thing that you do see when you look at this is how self-contained the Corbyn project is, that a lot of people who are very influential, we categorise them as the core, mid and outer tier. And in that top core tier, there's only about eight individuals who really shape the leaders' thinking and people say effectively run the party here. But a lot of the big figures from the Labour era, the Ed Miliband era, the Gordon Brown era, and obviously the Tony Blair era are totally out of sorts then. And I think when you look at the 
networks that link all these people together, some go back decades to long forgotten fringe groups like the Labour Representation Committee or the Campaign for Labour Democracy. And when you stand back and look at it now, as we're on the precipice of potentially another general election, it does make you realise the policy in the people. Labour has changed so much over the past um, four years. I, I agree with that to, to some extent. I think the, the other quite interesting thing which um, people haven't focused much on possibly is that there's quite a split um, in many ways between elements of the Corbyn movement in that there are lots of people who are kind of relics from the 70s and 80s who've thought the same thing ever since they were students, you know, mates of Jeremy, um, people who were maybe kicked out of the Labour Party or came close to being kicked out for being so militant or, or so left-wing back then. And then you've got a whole new generation of people in their maybe 20s or 30s who don't have some of the baggage of of that era. And in some ways, interestingly, you know, the older ones perhaps obsessed with, you know, nationalisations, for example, that the younger ones much greener, you know, in terms of wanting to shift the economy um, to, in a more in, pro-environmental way. And one thing that's going to come up at Labour Conference in a couple of weeks' time is there's a, a motion by Momentum, which not only sort of backs this 10% shares seizure, but it, the other really big policy in there is they're calling for a zero carbon target of 2030. And they've basically you know, 20 years earlier than the government wants to do or indeed the Committee for Climate Change wants to do. And when you say to them, but that's incredibly radical, trying to basically go to net zero carbon emissions in only a decade, you know, these guys are saying, well, if you look at Extinction Rebellion, they want to do it by 2025. So they, they are thinking in ways that are extraordinarily radical, even by the standards of, uh, of 70s lefties. And finally, Jim, just to pick up on what's been the big debate in Westminster with Labour this week, which is a general election, because as we talked about earlier in the podcast, Boris is now desperate for an election. He's got a few tools left, but really his main aim of, of trying to dissolve Parliament hasn't worked. Just briefly, can you outline what Labour's thinking is on trying to get an election, when they want it and how it might happen? So Boris Johnson's calculation was that if he was forced to try and seek a general election, then Labour would, of course, back it because what kind of opposition party would be crazy enough to turn down the chance to get into government? But what we've seen over the last few days is a very, very interesting debate among uh, the opposition parties and within Labour itself, where a lot of Labour MPs and some of the smaller parties, including the Liberal Democrats, have said, look, no deal is the most important thing we can't even think about an election until no deal's off the table. So some people in Corbyn's office and indeed the SNP for quite a while were arguing, well, we could still do a vote of no confidence next week, which will enable us to have this 14-day period where we try and sort of form an alternative government and we stop no deal. And we also have an election at the end of October. But they seem to have lost the argument amongst the opposition MPs and the consensus as of this conference call this morning now seems to be there won't be an attempt so firstly, they won't back Boris Johnson's move to have an election under the FTPA. Secondly, uh, they won't do a vote of no confidence next week. And it looks increasingly likely that we will drift into November when Boris Johnson himself won't want an election. So maybe it'll be the Tories blocking it then rather than the opposition. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Chris, Miranda, James and Maddie for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.